The scripture reading this morning comes from a number of places in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's going to be unusual. We're not going to just be in one text. Uh, and, and what this means is, let me just go ahead and get the cat out of the bag. This is really three sermons in one sermon, okay? So buckle up. I'm sorry, but that's just the way this is. But it's just fascinating to see how Paul is shepherding these people in this strange place called Corinth and the way that he's revealing the way the, way the gospel's changing his life in all these different ways. So let's read. We're going to read from chapter 4 uh, and then chapter 9 and then chapter 15. And so it's printed for you. It'll probably be easier for you to just follow along there, but you can flip in your Bible if you'd like to. And then um, it's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it's on your screen as well. So let's, let's read together from, um, from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is how one should regard us, Paul writes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And let's go on to verse 19 of chapter 9. For though, he writes, I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I have become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I become as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. And to those outside of the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And then in chapter 15, he writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me, or with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. So we've been talking for a number of weeks uh, about our mission and vision, uh, going back through them after a number of years of not having done that. And we've said that at Redeemer, we want to be, we're striving, we're attempting to be, by God's grace, a people who are fluent in the gospel and for the city. And because of those two things, who then we pray God uses to ignite and then cultivate a movement of churches and ministries that renew Winter Haven in Polk County, filling our area and our city with what we're going to call gospel people, that is, people who have been profoundly shaped by the gospel. Now, we've said over the last number of weeks that the gospel is different than both irreligion and religion, relativism and moralism. It's something different. Both of those are rooted in what we would call worksness. And as a result, if you look carefully, you'll notice that they tend to create a person trapped in that way of believing and living that is or that fundamentally operates out of either a superiority complex towards other people or an inferiority complex towards others, or some combination of the two. Typically, you'll find people who are proud, but at the same same time profoundly insecure. It's just really strange. Obsessively self-conscious, because works creates 
necessarily anxiety, performance anxiety. And so Dane Ortland, he wrote this, and I, I love this little sentence, because he, he, <laughs> it just describes so well even my own experience. He said, there is an entire psychological substructure that due to the fall is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear stuffing, nervousness, scorekeeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety festering silliness. Doesn't that sound lovely? The gospel, the go- and I mean, I think that characterizes so much of our society and so many people. The gospel, though, is grace. And a person that is shaped by grace gives off a very different vibe. They are self-forgetful and at the same time others-centered and also immune from all of that anxiety, festering, silliness, possessing instead an inner confidence and calm, this, this, this beautiful combination of humility, but inner composure and strength. Doesn't that sound a whole lot better? I mean, look around, thank you, thank you, Gigi. I mean, look around at the way the world we live in is shaping people. The gospel is the power of God shaping those who believe and then keep believing and repenting into a completely different type of person, off the map, really. It's what you see in the Apostle Paul in each of these texts I read, and so we're just going to kind of walk through each of them as we go in turn, but I want you to see that when we talk about a gospel person, we're just trying to describe a person who's been profoundly shaped in a number of different areas, in their self-image and in their relationships and even in their roles. And that really, those are really the three things these three passages hit. Paul is showing us, he's revealing to us the way that the gospel has shaped his self-understanding, his self-image, also his relationships with other people as he does ministry in the places that God calls him, and then thirdly, in his roles and the way he thinks about his work and, and, and the way that his life is involved in his work, okay? So let's just walk through this basically this whole letter in, in many ways by looking at each of those things in turn. So first, to be if you're going to be a gospel person, then that means the gospel is profoundly shaping your self-image, the way you think about yourself. And that's what we see here in chapter four with Paul. Now, I really want this to steer clear of becoming overly psychologized. It's a real danger. My point is actually going to be that we think about ourselves too much. And John Calvin argued that, they that you can only get to know yourself and the truth about yourself by first knowing the truth about God. So, all self-knowledge is not self-actualization. All self-knowledge, true self-knowledge, is actually theological reflection. That's what, that's what Calvin meant, or it should be, for it to be accurate. And it's exactly what you see Paul doing here in 1 Corinthians 4. Now, this is so fun. Look, let's look at this, okay? The first thing I want you to see is how Paul took God so very seriously. He starts in verse 1. Look there with me. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and the stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So Paul's saying, God is the big deal here. I'm just a steward. My job is merely to take care of all of his stuff. But he's the big deal. He takes God very seriously, which means because he takes God so seriously, the second thing I want you to see is how Paul refused to take himself so seriously. Look at how he puts it. He says, he goes on, so with me, verse 3, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now that's a fascinating statement. It means that Paul lived with a very low opinion of other people's opinions about him. He just wasn't all that concerned or worried about what people said or thought about him. His sense of self 
was not connected to the judgment of others, we, in truth, are constantly playing out the judgment day with each other. Passing judgment on one another. It's part of the pride that seeks to put the self in God's place. Pride is competitive, and so we're constantly judging one another, passing verdicts on one another to knock others down and push ourselves up the rankings, and it's truly a way of putting ourselves in God's place. That prerogative is only God's, but we insist on doing it for ourselves. We play out, we play act the judgment seat of Christ as if we have the right or the authority to do so. And so we run around doing this all the time, like the Limicks, the little wooden people in Max Lucado's children's story. I think... Tammy even has it uh, over on the other side. These little people who go around all day, every day, all they do is pass out dots and stars, dots for every failure they see in, in one of the other Wemmicks, and stars for the successes. And it so, so um, accurately captures the spirit of our age. Most of us care too deeply what other people think. We are too devastated by criticism and too elated by praise because we're sourcing our sense of self in the verdicts that other give the others give us our commendation which is a word Paul uses here a couple of times comes from others not from God and so the dots and the stars that other people give to us they stick and the dots do more than the stars but not with Paul see what Paul's describing here is he's saying the dots and the stars don't stick this is a little thing. I, it's not, you know, it's, it's a small thing. He actually says, a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Well, how do you get there? I'm like, how? Like, anybody? How does that happen? Well, most people in our culture would say, here is the, the turn you have to make. That They would say, it should not matter what other people think of you. It should only matter what you think of you. You can't live for other people's standards you got to stop doing that. Choose your own standards. Stop looking around for other people to affirm you. You affirm yourself. You look within. You decide what's important to you, and then just don't worry about what other people think. You're free to be your authentic self. But listen to Paul, though. He said, it is a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, verse 3. But he goes on, in fact, I do not even judge myself. So Paul said, I have a very low opinion of other people's opinions. And I also have a very low opinion of my opinion. Paul had a very low opinion of others' opinions of him, and he had a very low opinion of his opinion of himself. He didn't care what others thought of him. He also didn't care what he thought of himself. He said, I'm not going to go around letting you just judge me and pass verdicts on me, but I'm also not going to go around just judging myself and passing verdicts on myself. And it's not what you think. It's not. It wasn't that Paul had such high self-esteem that he was able to shake off the negative verdicts. Look, he goes on. Look at verse 4, he says, For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. That is stunning. He says, he's basically saying, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. I mean, let's be honest. Just because I don't know of any reason that, you know, I should, I should be guilty doesn't mean there isn't one. He, he doesn't feel bad about himself, but it isn't because he feels so good about himself. He just doesn't think about himself. He refuses to connect how he feels about himself with his performance. He sees all kinds of sins in himself, all kinds of accomplishments too, but he refuses to connect them with himself or his identity. When he does something wrong, he, he doesn't fall apart and beat himself up. When he does something good, he doesn't start to congratulate himself and boast to others. His performance and his sense of self are completely disconnected from one another. It really is amazing. And so a gospel person 
modeled here by the Apostle Paul is not always talking about how bad they are or what a nobody they are. They, of course, would also not be boasting and pointing out how great they are. They just don't think about themselves. They don't talk about themselves. They don't draw attention to themselves because they're just self-forgetful in that way. Tim Keller has this helpful analogy about how the parts of the body that are working properly don't draw attention to themselves. They just work. And so if your knee starts hurting, that's the knee saying, pay attention to me. I'm wounded. Something's wrong, right? There's an injury. If the knee, if your knee is working the way it's supposed to, then you won't even be thinking about the knee because the knee's not drawing attention to itself and the ego's the same. If it is working the way it's supposed to, it just works. It doesn't need to be constantly drawing attention to itself. And it worked this way with Paul because he took God so very seriously. He refused to allow others or even himself to pass verdicts ahead of the time when the ultimate verdict would be handed down by God. Look at what he says here. Who, verse 5, brings to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Here's the thing. Here's what Paul's exposing. The problem with all of our judgments, the problem with the way we go around just like casting verdicts on one another and judging one another and playing out the the day of judgment with one another, the problem with all of that is that that all of our judgments are wrong. They're wrong because they're based on incomplete evidence. There's a lot that is hidden that can't be seen. Man looks on outward appearance, which means that the people so intent on judging you, they don't know you. But you know what it also means? You don't even know you. Because sin is deceitful. And it hides itself from you. And so you're unaware of the things that are killing you the most. And you're unaware of probably the the things that are the greatest things about you. That's why it's so silly to make such a big deal out of what other people think of you or even what you think of you. Look at verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me, Paul says. And that is why it was a small thing for Paul when others started passing verdicts on him in his ministry. Paul knew that there was an ultimate verdict that would come down by God, but he also knew that that verdict would not be based on his performance. It would, look at that verse 5, it would be, at the end of the day, a commendation. It would actually turn and be an affirmation. He would get a crown. He would get the medals. He would get all of the things from God as the reward of all that all that 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 had been true of his life that God would look on him with approval and love and even delight see Paul did not allow himself to get pulled into the courtroom on a daily basis like we do he knew that he was not on trial because he knew that Jesus Christ went on trial instead he knew the truth of the gospel that Jesus went into the courtroom, and he was put on trial, and it was a kangaroo court. He was innocent, but was found guilty, so that those who might are guilty might be found innocent in him. Jesus, this is the Christian gospel, Jesus took the condemnation that we deserve. He was judged in our place, hanging upon the cross, bearing our curse, so that when we stand before God, it will not be to be condemned. Here's the good news. If you put your faith in Jesus, that means that When you stand before God on that day, that judgment will be a commendation for you too. Paul learned this from Jesus, you know. This way of of doing life. One of my favorite scenes in the Gospels in John 5, Jesus looks to the crowd and he says, you guys, I don't know, it's great. You guys are really messed up. He said, because you're going around trying to get glory from one another, You don't have the love of God in your life, but not me. 
I, I get my glory from God. My heart is full of the love of God. That's the difference between you and me. And that, that one exchange is such a beautiful revelation. I keep coming back to it over and over again because it's such a beautiful revelation of the way Jesus' heart worked. It explains all his power. It explains his selfless love. It explains the energy and the force of his life. He says, I do not live for the approval that you give because my heart is full and overflowing with the love that God has for me. And if you put your faith in him, he offers to bring you into the same kind of love between the persons of the Trinity. And it will radically change the way you think about yourself, the way it did for Paul. But secondly, not just your self-image, but also your relationships. So we go on to 1 Corinthians 9, and Paul here... He, this is, it's, just, it's just marvelous to see the way he's just this unique person because here he, he's able to uniquely navigate the expectations of others. So because he's got this rock-solid image of himself and his, you know, his identity and self-understanding is so powerfully shaped by the gospel, begins to shape the way he, he does relationships, the way he navigates the expectations that other people have for him. So in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Now, you should probably underline that in your Bible or something or do something and come back to that because that's a significant, it's a significant phrase. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Now, just think about that for a minute. Typically, people are either... One of two things. They're either completely lacking in boundaries or they are overboundaried. And it's very hard to find the balance between those two things. But Paul somehow did. He somehow was able to avoid, on the one hand, codependency, which is a relationship where one person needs the other person who in turn needs to be needed. And it's like crack cocaine for both of those people. One person needs, the other person needs to be needed, and so they just reinforce one another in this cycle of, of a really destructive cycle. Another word is enmeshment. Enmeshment describes when there is not a clear sense of where my personhood uh, ends and the other person's begins, and so personal boundaries are blurred and not respected or maybe not even acknowledged, so there's a loss of personal autonomy, and even on an emotional level where I'm not okay unless you're okay, and we're completely, I mean, there, it's, this, is a, this is a really dysfunctional system, family, relationship, whatever the case might be, because there's just not a healthy sense of boundaries. Now, it's a very unhealthy way of relating. And Ed Welch, who works with Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF, he said that this is the result, this is how he put it, it's the result of people becoming too big and God being too small. He actually wrote a book with that title, and I would recommend, it's really a great book. It's what the Bible calls the fear of man. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but the fear of man lays a snare. That's Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare. And so the fear of man is replacing God with some other relationship as the emotional and spiritual center of your life. In the fear of man, we tend to need people for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. So Ed Welch goes on to say the task for most of us in our sanctification is that, that the task that God sets before us is to need people less so that we can love them more. And I have to come back to that sentence so often in my life. I really do. Uh, it really profoundly changed the way I thought about the way I, I did relationships because this is a real problem for me. But Paul was clear. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, I am free from all. That, it's an amazing statement. He says, though I'm free from all. In other words, he did not need people too much. He was 
not exhausting himself to try to meet people's expectations. He was free from fear of man and people pleasing. He didn't need people to think he was doing a great job. In fact, there was no need motivating him at all. There was no have to in his life. He goes on to say, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. Do you see that? In other words, there was no law. There was no more have to. There was no external pressure or expectations, either from God or from other people, coercing his behavior. He was this unique person, uniquely motivated entirely from his own sense of calling and desires. He said, I don't do things because I have to. I do them because I want to. I do them because I'm called to, because I'm asked to, and I'm free. I'm free from all external expectations or demands. Now, I can already feel you bracing against that because typically when we come across somebody like this, it's usually because they've swung the pendulum all the way to the other side and become overly boundaried and withdrawn. And to avoid the pain of having their heart broken, they've locked their heart up in a, and to keep it safe in a what C.S. Lewis calls a casket of selfishness to such a degree that it actually becomes unbreakable. Or they're so exhausted from all of the have-to that they swing right past self-care, which is appropriate, into self-indulgence, and they have reactionary selfishness. Sometimes it feels like those are the only two options, doesn't it? To be either sacrificial or just completely selfish. To be all things to all people and exhaust yourself towards that, or to give up and to become nothing to no one. But somehow Paul was able to steer, steer clear of this too, these extremes, because look what he says. Though I'm free from all, this is verse 19. I have made myself a servant to all. Isn't that astounding? Paul's sense of self was so grounded that he did not need other people the way we normally sinfully do. But that didn't make him selfish. It actually freed him to love. He needed people less. So he was able to love them more. He didn't serve others to meet his own needs. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. He could say no, but he could say yes. He could say yes. He could say no. He was completely free to do whatever love required of him. What love required. Right? Love for God first of all. He said, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Not for the sake of other people thinking he was great. Not to prove what a good person he was. He did it from his own experience of being loved by God in such a way that it filled up all the inner emptiness and need inside of him. So in the gospel, see, Paul saw Jesus becoming like him, laying aside his glory and becoming nothing to love him. He saw Jesus' humility. He saw his obedience, his willingness to make himself a servant, even to the point of death on the cross. He saw Jesus sacrificing himself for his sins. He saw him living his whole life, not doing his own will, not meeting his own needs, but loving others. And Paul, he was so overwhelmed by all of it, he lived in light of all that he saw in the beauty of Christ with a new power to live free and at the same time willingly making himself a servant as an act of love for God and others. And this is, verse 21, the law of Christ. Paul says, I'm not under the law but I am under the law of Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're here and your faith is in Jesus, you are no longer under the law. Isn't that great news? Like Paul, you're no longer under the law. There is no more have to, but that doesn't mean that you're free to do whatever you want. 
Remember what we read? Was it Thursday we read 2 Corinthians 5 where it says the love of Christ compels us to live not for ourselves but for him who loved us? His love, his love should control you, not your need. Not your selfishness, that's the difference. His love compelling you and controlling you free from all to make yourself a servant to all. That is the key. So the key to healthy relationships is for God to be big and people to be small. And God is nowhere bigger than he is in the gospel of Christ, which is why a gospel person can live with this unique sense of self and also a unique sense of how to do these dynamics in relationships. Because the antidote to the fear of man is not self-care. The antidote to the fear of man that is so dominating our lives is the fear of the Lord. And Michael Reeves, in his book called Fear and Trembling, argued that the fear of God is not being afraid of God. It's, it refers to being overwhelmed by all that God is, by his holiness and his power and his majesty and his love and his mercy, his forgiveness, to be so overwhelmed by the experience of God, by the knowing of God, by the seeing of all of the beauty and the glory of God, that everything else becomes small, and you tremble before him, not the expectations of others. You tremble before him, and not whatever fearful thing might be coming towards you in your life. You tremble before him, and not your own fear of being insignificant or not needed. Paul learned this from Jesus too, by the way. Do you remember the scene at the wedding of Cana? Mary, his mother, wanted <laughs> Jesus to do something about the wine that was running out. Do you remember how he responded? It's the best. Teenagers, I do not advise this kind of response to your mother when she asks something of you. Woman? Not good. He said, woman? Not my time. Let me translate that for you. Jesus said, mom? I love you, but there is someone bigger in my life than you are. And I take my cues from him, not you. I do what he says, not what you say. But what's fascinating is, as you learn in the story, that actually freed him to do what she asked, but not because she asked. You see? It's really, though I'm free from all, that being free from all is actually the thing that allows me to become a servant to all. It's a beautiful way to do relationships. But third, not only your self-image and your relationships, but also your roles. And uh, roles are just a way to understand your work. So I'm a pastor, that's a role, but I'm also a husband and I'm a father and I'm a friend and I'm those things first before I'm a pastor. So listen to Paul describe his roles. This is, I love this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. He says, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, he goes on, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, or with me. Now notice how connected Paul's sense of his work, his calling, is with the grace of God. And so again, even in this part of his life, he's being profoundly shaped by his understanding of the gospel. And what did that do? Well, look here. On the one hand, it created a compelling humility in Paul. I want you to see this. He, he says, he's just very straightforward about the reality of his, 
having persecuted the church. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. And he, I mean, Paul believed that. He, he did not have a superiority complex. Like we said before, he did not, we did not wear the title of, a, of apostle as a badge of honor. He, he acknowledged the truth about himself. He said, I can't take any credit for anything. There is only one explanation for my life being what it is, what it is for me becoming who I am today. And it's not anything that I have done. It's the grace of God. Whatever successes I've seen, they are because, not because of my hard work or my good leadership or anything in me. It is, it's all grace. And Gavin Ortland has defined humility as sensitivity to reality. And that's become so important to me because I think that's true. That humility, humility, the sense of humility is sensitivity to reality. And that really is what you see here in Paul because here's what I want you to see. Paul didn't have a superiority complex but he didn't have an inferiority complex either. Because he says, look, there he goes on. He says, yeah, I'm the least of all the apostles. I really don't even be, I really am not even, um, you know, worthy to be called an apostle. But he says, his grace to me was not in vain because I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, it's so fascinating. He said, I'm a nobody, but I, I'm an absolute nobody. I shouldn't even be here, but... If you really want to, you know, get to the truth of things, I've accomplished more than anybody else has. You should chuckle. It's, I mean, it's funny. You know, I'm a nobody, but nobody outworked me. He compliments himself. And then he immediately acknowledges that all of the successes and accomplishments that he might be proud of are, in fact, a credit to God. But he's still not afraid to offer a positive review of his work. And here's what this means. If you can't take a compliment from someone when you've done a good job, that's not humility. If you can't acknowledge the good in you and in what you've done, that's not humility. It's false humility. Humility isn't hiding your talents and abilities. It doesn't require that you keep your strengths hidden. If you can throw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, it is not humility to sit on the bench and never tell the coach. That's selfishness. And so C.S. Lewis has this passage in Screwtape Letters where the senior devil advises his protege. I've, I've put some of it in the worship folder for you, but it's a little bit of a longer quote. He says, The enemy, who is God... Wants, a person, wants to bring a person into a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world. Think of Westminster Abbey. Don't lie, I know you watched some of the coverage yesterday. Everybody did. Like you saw it on Twitter or on somewhere, right? You saw the pictures. So the enemy wants to bring a person to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would have been if it had been done by someone else. The enemy, that is God, wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. So one feature of gospel humility is that you don't need to be noticed, but you don't mind it either. You don't need flattery, but you can sincerely receive a compliment and acknowledge the truth of it. You don't flaunt or boast, but you're not constantly minimizing and hiding yourself either. Paul didn't look, look at his work and say, he didn't, he didn't say, well, I've done really well and then become puffed up, but he didn't look at his work and say, you know, I really messed that up and start to beat himself up and become full of regret and turn in his letter of resignation either. He was able to not take himself and his work too seriously, but without diminishing it either because humility is sensitivity to reality and so as you read it's fascinating and I know the guys have even talked about this on Tuesday mornings as they've read through first Corinthians together that there are times where Paul even defended himself 
And it's a little annoying. You're like, man, that's awfully, seems needy. But if you look, I think, between the lines there a little bit, he defended himself without becoming defensive. Because what was important was the truth. Now, that's possible too. I, I kind of hesitate to share this, but I had a guy this week that I'm working with who in a meeting with some colleagues, he, he like came after me hard, like started accusing me of trying to undermine his project. And he claimed that I wasn't returning his phone calls. And he just kept, kept doing it, coming after me over and over again uh, and put me, on, like, put me in the dock. And I told him I thought he was mistaken, but he just, he just wouldn't stop, kept coming after me. So when the meeting was over, <laughs> I decided to do a deep dive into all my communications with him to go back through my email and text and voicemail. Now, I'm not proud of this, but I even pulled six months' worth of phone records and combed through them. Because it wasn't that I, because I felt defensive. It's because, uh, because the truth of things matters a lot of the time for everybody involved. And I was ready. I was ready to acknowledge. I, like, I, I kept saying, I, listen, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was ready to fess up. But here's what I learned. In six months... Not one single phone call to my cell phone. Now, I made sure he knew about it later. You can be sure of that. I'm not perfect. I'm not Jesus, okay? But you see, I, like, I, there's, there's something appropriate about that, though. Paul said, it's the grace of God in me. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul's identity, his relationships, even his work, all of it was shaped by the grace that he had been shown in Jesus. Paul knew that the work of righteousness that God required of him was done for him by another. That's what it means to be saved by grace, Ephesians chapter 2, which we read. Grace is opposed to merit, which means you can't look at your work and boast, you can't you know, you can't look at how well you're doing and how poorly others are doing and start to feel better about yourself and look down on them. You can't make your work a righteousness because grace is opposed to merit, but it is not opposed to effort. Grace means you're saved without doing, but being saved leads to doing. And in Ephesians 2, it's the reason why we picked that passage. If you want to look back in your worship folder, you'll see there that Paul says that we are, those who are being saved are also God's workmanship, and it's a beautiful image. It means that every person in this room who is on a journey of faith is something beautiful that God is making. The way a master sculptor puts the rock together to make something beautiful, or a master woodworker puts something together that is useful and beautiful, refers to that that idea of being God's workmanship refers to both your faith in believing, which comes from God, and also all of the good works that you do in your life, which also come from God, because it says there that they have been prepared. So grace doesn't make obedience optional. It makes obedience possible. But you don't trust in your own good works. You don't boast in them, but you, don't, but, but you do insist on them. Because God's grace is not in vain. It does not leave you unchanged. Taking credit for the change grace makes is an insult to the giver. But so is refusing to acknowledge the change that grace makes. That's an insult to the giver also. So look at how carefully Paul puts it in verse 10. He says, I worked harder 
than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God with me. In other words, he acknowledges the truth about his work, but then in the same breath, he recognizes the greater work of God toward him that makes all of his work possible. And that, beloved, is a very, very healthy way to think about your work. The gospel is the power of God, which means gospel people are the conduit of that power in the world. Think about that. If the gospel is the power of God, then people whose lives are surging with the electricity of the power everywhere they go, everything that gets plugged into them, everything that they get connected to starts to surge with that same power. These are people who have a healthy self-image. They don't take themselves too seriously because they take God so seriously. They have a healthy relationships because God is big and people are small. And they have a healthy work ethic and balance because God's work matters most and grace is everything. And this is why we say that the gospel is our curriculum. Because only the gospel, only the gospel can do that work in our lives and in all of those areas of our lives. And so we believe it is our job in this city to continue to hold on to the gospel of Jesus and to refuse to move on to something else because only the gospel is the power of God. Isaac Watts has this great hymn. Uh, the, last, the last stanza of it says this, the happy gates of gospel grace stand open day, excuse me, let me start over. The happy gates of gospel grace stand open night and day. Lord, we are come to seek supplies and drive our wants away. Amen? So pray with me, would you? That is exactly where we find ourselves, Father, as we contemplate just our own lack in light of all that we see in Paul here. Maybe a sense of, oh, I wish that I could be more like that. Wouldn't life be great? Or, oh, I am full of repentance because I realize how I've allowed myself to take myself too seriously and not take you, Lord, seriously enough. And so would you lead us this morning into greater faith and a greater repentance, even as we even as we gather around this table, we would say with Isaac Watts, Lord, we are come to seek supplies. And so would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, meet us in that place of need and lacking and want and fill us to overflowing with a sense of your love and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. That we might, beholding the glory of the Lord, be transformed with ever-increasing glory into the same image. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Yet not I, but Christ in me. That is the power of the gospel. Because here's what that means. If you go this week, and if this week is full of all kinds, a whirlwind of success for you, for you to be able to say, in spite of all of the good things that have happened to me this week, yet not I, but Christ in me. Or if you go this week and it's full of just terrible discouragements and defeats for you to be able to say, you know what, it's been a really bad week, yet not I, but Christ. And so that is what this benediction means, that, uh, that, that God goes with you, and so that can be your confession, no matter what might come. Uh, but he has sent us into a world that desperately needs gospel people to be conduits of his grace. And so go now. Uh, as his people with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.
Thank you.